everyone. Good to have you here. I know this is a rough time of year because some of you have kids that are going back to school or have just gone back to school and the summer's over and <clears throat> you're concerned about uh, making sure they've got everything going for them and that they're going to be in bed on time tonight for tomorrow and whatnot. So I know it's tough. So it's really a blessing to see you and a blessing to be together here uh, tonight. And uh, of course, we're not going to change what we're doing. We've got to Keep pressing on, meeting together, uh, fellowshipping in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, enjoying the time that we have to encourage each other's hearts as the day of Christ approaches, and then to go out of here and let people know about Jesus. And then all of these things are, are part of what we do as, as, on a daily basis. And so it's a joy that we can, can be here together. I want to kind of give you a quick little uh, prophecy update because uh, I think some of us need to to realize that what we see happening today in Iraq, especially in Mosul and in, in the areas where uh, this group called the Islamic State or the Islamic State is, uh, is doing their uh, uh, most diabolical and uh, uh, treacherous work, uh, this is not just another rise of a group of uh, radical Islamists. If you keep up with what is the, the thrust of their, of their war, of course, is to bring about an Islamic caliphate. Now, if you've been with us long enough on, on, on Wednesday nights, back when we were in uh, chapter 18 especially, when we were dealing with Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, uh, Mystery Babylon the Great, let me not forget. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. We, we, we took a different approach to what is uh, normally considered, you know, the, uh, uh, the end time scenario. We said that a lot of times when we get to that one particular verse that deals with the, the seven mountains and we say, well, that's seven hills and the seven hills is speaking about Rome. Uh, we went through a, a very detailed study that, number one, it's not Rome, but the uh, alternative is that it can very well and should be uh, our focus should be upon what is taking place in the Middle East today and that Mystery Babylon itself is quite possibly the um, as the mother of harlots the, the very uh, uh, Arabic group of of, of the, the ones who control all the oil in, in, in the Middle East and uh, uh, speaking, of course, of Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, those in the United Arab Emirates, uh, Dubai being the center of all of that. We, we, taught, we did a lot of that. If you haven't, uh, if you weren't here, I, I really encourage you to go back and, and listen to some of these uh, 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 studies. But I bring it up today because the Islamic caliphate that these... Uh, uh, terrorists are, are wanting to bring about goes right back to that rise of the eighth uh, kingdom that the leadership will come out of Turkey. If you remember, the last caliphate was ended back in the uh, early 20s. And the, it was the Turkish caliphate. The eighth was to be exactly like the seventh, we said. Or was that the sixth and the seventh? My numbers are all mixed up in my head a little bit for just a minute. But I think, you got, I think it's the eighth and it's the same as the seventh. So, here again... A lot of people don't realize that a lot of the funding that is going on are from two locations. The uh, uh, Saudi Arabian group 
that has all of the funds and Turkey. You do enough digging and you find out that this is where they are really being uh, funded. Now, Muslims kill Muslims. That's been a fact that we've seen historically for a long time. Sunnis and Shiites are not the best of friends, but at, at some point in time, they're all going to be together. One may overtake the other, one may pull more influence over another. The point of the matter is that because they're fighting each other, other nations have to be very careful of how they approach which side to be on. That is the problem right now when we have a, um, an administration in our own country that doesn't really pay attention to what the Bible says. And hence, the reason why we as, as the church who study the Word of God and really believe what the Word of God says, especially in these last days and especially in the prophets and especially in the book of Revelation, that we need to pray that we don't go any further away from the nation of Israel than we have in the last six years or so, and maybe even longer than that. We heard uh, recently, last night and today, that uh, there has been a an agreement to bring peace between Hamas and Israel. That's um, very superficial, but Israel will take it. And we'll take it because we're going to go in January. We want it peaceful when we go. <laughs> and uh, so uh, these, are, these are things that we need to be aware of. So I'm just, I just want to kind of go back a little bit, bring you back up to, to speed on what's going on over there. And the very fact that all of that stuff all of what we see, we've been studying for the last couple of years in the book of Revelation. Touching upon it here and there, little pieces. And, but when we got to chapters 18 and 19, I mean, we really had to dig deep into what was going on because everything going on today is found in those chapters. So now, all of that is passed in the sense of, historically speaking, from the standpoint of John receiving this vision of the future... The millennial kingdom has taken place. A thousand years has taken place. It brings us now to the last five verses of, of chapter 20. And that's where we want to go. And, uh, and start our study this evening. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. As you are turning there. Or unless you're already there. Are you already there? Okay, most of you are saying yes. And the others are just waking up with me. But as you're turning there, let me read something to you from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. In other words, Michael is that, that uh, great angel that uh, is actually the angel that oversees the activities of the nation of Israel. I'm getting some ring from this speaker up here. I don't know where my sound man is, but I need to... Control that, because I do walk this way sometimes. Uh, anyway, it says, So uh, Michael shall stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now keep that in mind, because we're dealing with books tonight. But then in verse 2, it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now we have dealt with that particular issue a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the first resurrection and a second resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection unto life, and the second resurrection is, is a thousand years later. At the end of the millennial kingdom, then there is a resurrection that leads to the second death. It's the resurrection that brings all who have rejected the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ before God. And that's what we're going to deal with tonight. We're going to deal with the great white throne judgment of God. We're going to deal with 
And I, I'm sorry, but my technology here seems to want to do its own thing. Great uh, white throne judgment of God, and we're going to deal with issues uh, dealing with the judgment of unbelievers, the lake of fire, and judging all devil, false prophet, the beast, the Antichrist. All of this encompassed in these five verses. So, Revelation 20, verse 11, let's read it. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. You'll notice that was been mentioned twice. Each one according to his works, judgment. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay. So we've been, uh, we've been made aware in the previous uh, passage, verses 7 through 10, which is what we looked at last time, that uh, at the end of the thousand-year period known as the millennial reign of Christ... Satan will be released out of the abyss or what is called the bottomless pit. And once again, he is going to deceive the nations. Now again, we, we dealt with this last week. I don't want to go into it in great detail. But what an, what an amazing thing it is going to be when so many people, after the Lord Jesus Christ has established a perfect world with a perfect government, with him on the throne of David... So many people will rebel against him. The earth will be in ideal conditions. Remember, it is bringing us back to the garden state. The state that was initially brought into this world when God created the heavens and the earth. And there was a garden in which there were Many, many trees with much fruit, and, and this is what uh, was given by God to man, the man he created in his own image. But then man fell in sin, and then, of course, the curse came upon the whole earth for all of these nearly 6,000 years. So now there's that restoration of the garden state. Now, I'm not talking about New Jersey, I'm talking about the state of, of the Garden of Eden on the earth again. There will not be, in a thousand years, there will not be a single war. In a thousand years, there will be no need for police departments. I say that because having been a police chaplain now for 13-some years, I, really, I would really like that. No police departments. No crime. Men will live as the Lord intended for man to live. In harmony, in peace, and in love. The environment on the earth is going to be perfect. You won't, have, you won't be awakened in, in the middle of the night with rumblings like the thunder that woke me up last night. Shook me out of bed. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. But you understand what I'm talking about. The environment on the earth will be perfect. No pollution. Fantastic climate. In a word, it is a beautiful, ideal world. And that is until Satan is released from his prison again. But remember this for a short time. 
He will go about doing what He does so well. Creating rebellion in the heart of man, deceiving man into thinking that he can improve on whatever God has done. Because why else would you go after God when you have a perfect world? Unless you can break it more perfect. Which you can't do anyway. But what about Satan? Uh, you know, when when he was considered Lucifer as 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 a as a uh, cherubim before God, who said, "You know what? I am going to sit on the throne. I am going to be in the high place." Again, read the book of Isaiah, chapter fourteen. And he rebelled against God, and a third of the angels with him were thrown out of heaven. So Satan provides now and will provide in his own diabolical way an inspiration to man to overthrow Jesus Christ and his kingdom once again. But as we learned last week, the end will be swift. As we saw in verse 9 in our last study. The end is swift. God sends fire and brimstone from heaven and that's it. I don't even think we can measure it in minutes. Or hours. And the instigator of this final deceit upon the inhabitants of the earth is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are already going to be. And where they will be suffering, listen carefully, they will be suffering torment from the ages to the ages. That is literally what it says in the Greek. From the ages to the ages, forever and ever. There is nothing metaphoric about this time frame. Why would God put it in this passage of Scripture if it was just to say, well, it's not really a thousand years. It's not really punishment. It's not really. Well, then you're calling God a liar. God says that these Tormentors are going to be tormented forever because of the torment that they brought upon the earth and upon the people who, had re- who were created in the image of God and led many of them astray. In fact, they will lead many of them into their own destruction and they will have to face the very same torment. Not just for a little while. But the phrase from the ages to the ages is the strongest Greek term possible to express eternity. So as we now come to the last five verses of this chapter, we arrive to the vision of the great white throne judgment of God in the period that is known as the second resurrection. These verses are among the most solemn in all of the scriptures. So they have to be taken as solemn. They have to be seen as serious. You know, the Bible, by the way, is serious from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know if you know that. You know, uh, at times the Lord gives us an opportunity to laugh. He gives us a little opportunity to find some humor here and there. But for the most part, from Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God is serious. Because it's all tied in together. There's not a thread that begins in Genesis and may go off into its own little thing for a while until it gets back into maybe the prophets or... No, from Genesis to Revelation, God has given us His whole plan. And it is a serious one. John is recording for us the scene of the final day of judgment when all who have died without a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior will give an account before the bar of God. When I say the bar of God, I am talking about that legal bar of God. Every attorney that wants to be, or every person who wants to become an attorney and has gone to school and studied jurisprudence, they have to take a bar exam. Please get it out of your heads that it has to do anything with nightclubs and liquor. It is the bar at which you stand where justice will prevail. 
where justice is supposed to prevail because it's blind and has to be based upon every evidence that is given about any certain kind of case. But this is what we're going to learn about the bar of God tonight. And what this whole issue is, what is happening and what will happen at this time. Verse 11 again. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. There's someone sitting on the throne from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. The fact of a face should give us an indication as to who it is. Because you see, the Bible tells us that God is a spirit. And everyone who worships him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But there is a face to God. And there was found no place for them. And, and we have to understand that little phrase that there was no place for them to hide from God. By the way, the phrase, then I saw, now this is New King James. Now I, I read and, and study the, the King James and, and there it's, it's and I saw. So if you have King James Version, it's and I saw. And the consistency in the King James is that that is the phrase that uh, provides for us an, un, an understanding of something. The phrase, and I saw, introduces something else that John saw in his vision. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw. In other words, it was a continuation of chronological progression throughout the whole of the vision given to him by the Lord. Take, for example, if you go back to chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in, the righteousness, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun. So there's a chronological progression. That's what that little phrase helps us to understand. It's not just little visions here and there out of place. No, there is a progression. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse against his army. Of course, that is speaking of Jesus on the horse. But then you can add chapter 20, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 4, and chapter 20, verse 12. Then you can go forward a little bit to chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. And again, you see that phrase, and I saw. So John is, is keeping us informed of the progression chronologically that all of these things are happening. The progression is notable. The progression is clear. And it is significant. The great white throne as we saw back in our, our, our text in verse 11. The great white throne that John saw appears to be different from the thrones that he referred to back in verse 4. It is evidently God's throne in heaven. But let's examine closely the throne itself and the one sitting on the throne. Because we can recall early on the throne mentioned in chapters 4 and 5. Listen to what we see there. Revelation 4 verse 2 says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven... And one sat on the throne. Now, we go on to verse 7 of chapter 5, and we're reminded, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who is he? It is the Lamb. It is the Lamb. The Lamb of God, of course, we know is Jesus. So he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. But when you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, here it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now that's a reference, of course, to God, but I am here to tell you it is also a reference to Jesus Christ. This is one reason why people need to realize that the deity of Jesus Christ is throughout all of the Scriptures. 
I've actually heard some theologians and commentators say, well, you know, Jesus himself never called himself deity and never claimed to be, you know, deity. But uh, I can show you hundreds of places where he did, whether by inference or, 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 or just uh, uh, directly and indirectly. But the scriptures make it clear that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the triune God, one God in three persons. The Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels of burning fire. Where have we seen that description? Book of Revelation. And that description is pointing us to Jesus. There was, it, it's clear as we see that, not only in chapter 1 of Revelation, but also what we saw in chapter 19. Then you, th- you, you, you go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, I can't wait till we get into Ezekiel because, man, sometimes... You know, when I, when I first came to the Lord, it was back in the 70s, and when, you know, I would read something like Ezekiel chapter 1, and I mean, it's got lights, and I thought, wow, UFOs, and it's got all kinds of stuff. I kept thinking, man, you know, if you did LSD with this book, you'd be really soaring high too, you know. I mean, it was kind of like, Wow! Well, we're going we're gonna to bring it, you know, more to a spiritual understanding when we get there. <laughs> but in Ezekiel chapter, chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And above the firmament and over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. And the likeness of the throne was a likeness on the likenesses. I'm sorry. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. So the appearance lets us know that someone's on the throne. That can be seen. And again, this brings us to the deity of Christ. It brings us to the very fact that this is Jesus. And still, the scriptures tell us that the judge is Jesus himself. The scriptures are very clear of that. Take, uh, if if you will, the uh, uh, or turn, if you will, to uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Now I've referred to this before, but now we're going to look at it in a little bit more detail. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. Now these are the words of Jesus himself. Jesus is speaking. I'm just making it clear. No one else is speaking. Jesus is speaking. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Clear. See or no? Clear. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father whom who he sent or who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. So now, do we want to know who has everlasting life? Jesus is making it clear. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, his father, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, speaking of the final judgment that we're dealing with in this chapter, but has passed from death into life. You see, if we, if this body dies, but I am in Christ, then this body may die, but I'm still alive. Because Jesus rose from the dead to secure all those who believe in him, everlasting life. And then he says in verse 25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. As, uh, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Another de- uh, uh, connection of deity or another understanding of deity because God shares his glory with no one. And therefore he does not share 
any of his attributes or powers with no one. So who is his son? For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. He crossed that barrier of eternity into this time continuum where we needed a Savior, where he was promised in Genesis 3.15 to be the seed of the woman. And he came and he took upon himself flesh and knows us and knows what we need and knows our hearts and knows how to save those hearts. And then he says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life before the thousand year reign of Christ. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, that is the resurrection at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, the second resurrection. And then Jesus said this in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now remember, he is in flesh, but he is in perfection, both God and man. He humbled himself to take upon himself this flesh, to come and show the Father to us. Just read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. The express image of God. And so the great white throne is great because of the status, power, and authority of the one who sits on the throne. The great white throne is great because of the status, power, and authority of the one who sits on that throne. The great white throne is white to reflect its purity, but mostly its holiness. And that of the one who sits on the throne. And as a throne, the great white throne represents God's sovereign kingship. And therefore the one sitting on the throne is the fullness of the triune God. Time and again we read and we've seen it and we've talked about it that Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God. But we also have said that any reference that we see in the scriptures of the right hand or the right arm of God is a reference to Jesus Christ. He's on the same throne at his right hand. And so the triune God in his fullness is expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who, by the way, reveals a significant part of his character as a judge, which we actually have seen before. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 6, I want you to see what it says there in verses 15 through 17. Those of us who have been through this whole study all the way through, it's just a you know, recap for you. But let's go to Revelation 6 verses 15 through 17. And as we're looking at this, let's remember that we're dealing here with the seal judgments. And um, in particular, the sixth seal. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The face of him who sits on the throne and 
from the wrath of the Lamb. The connection, of course, being that we're not dealing with two people on the throne. We go on to verse 17. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The wrath of the Lamb, the day of His wrath has come. The face of Him on the throne. Who are we dealing with? You see, we are dealing now with the judge or the justice character of God who is Christ. Because even Jesus said, the Father judges no one but gives me the authority to judge. Let me just say that no one, and don't miss this, let me just say that no one is better qualified than Jesus Christ for this task. No one is better qualified than Jesus for this task. Having done all that he could and all that could be done to save man. He is the one whom those who rejected him must now face him as judge. Do you see that picture? The one who did everything that he could and that could be done for man. What did he do? First of all, he humbled himself. He took upon himself flesh. He lived. He preached. He healed. He taught. He saved. But to do that, he had to die. And he died on the cross. And he shed his blood in a, in a most horrendous way. And then he was put on display for the whole world to see him. At, the, at that time, that was the world. Rome in the midst of Judea. Naked to the world. But one bloody pulp on a cross... And yet Jesus said, I will be lifted up. And if I am lifted up, I will draw men unto me. Now think about that for a moment. Think about the implications of what he says, because we say, well, wait a minute. All people will come to him on the cross. It is there on the cross that he died for man's sins. Who becomes affected by that death on the cross? Everyone who believes and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, he draws all men to himself, whether men want to come or not. The atheist who doesn't want any... any, Sound of Jesus' name anywhere. We don't want anything like that. Well, turn off your TV, turn off your radio, quit buying this magazine, do that, go someplace else. But you know what? Don't tell us what we believe, or what we shouldn't believe, or what we shouldn't say. In this country, but things are changing. But don't worry, God is still on the throne. Christ is still on the throne. Christ is still coming again. And then don't get all worried. Oh, my country's falling apart. Yes, it's okay. Praise the Lord. Jesus is coming. And He's coming sooner than you expect. So get busy. And get joyful. And lift your head up. Because our God is the lifter of our head. Quit hanging your head. I am burdened by what I see the Islamic State's doing to Christians today. But it only gets me to dig deeper to know that one day, very soon, Jesus is going to be here. And I want to make sure that you know that and that you tell people that and that you have the ammunition, as it were, that you have the truth and that you have everything that you need to let people know that Jesus is coming. So, where am I? I don't know. I forgot where I'm at. All right. So Jesus is the one who really fits better than anyone the task that he is as a judge. 
The awesomeness of this throne and the one who is seated upon it are so great that even the earth and the heaven must flee. They're fleeing because they don't know where to go. They, 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 they think they can get away from the judgment, but they can't. By the way, this might well describe the day that we see in Second Peter chapter 3. Would you turn there to verse 10? Most of you are familiar with this passage, but, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are uh, in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... Folks, I, I, I want you really, if, if you, in your studies, underline your Bible or you mark it with a highlighter, if you don't have this highlighted, you need to highlight this verse. Therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? It's in reference to what has just been said in verse 10. Because the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night... And all these things are going to happen. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness today, right now? Isn't that a good thing that Jesus didn't give us a date? Because we'd act just like the world until the two days before. Well, I'm going to get my act together tomorrow because I know the day after Jesus is coming. Do you understand? You understand now why, why we're not given a date? Because it's now that we have to live for Christ. It's now that we need to be people in holy conduct and godliness. Now! Not tomorrow. And will we stumble? Will we struggle? Yeah, it's okay, but we have a great God who will help us through that. He picks us up. Because He knows us. But it's right here. It's not putting on... Mask. It's not being hip- hypocritical. It's, you know, God, God reads superficial faith, folks, because He knows the heart. And, and people get excited about a prophecy. I mean, I tell you, forty years ago, when I got into the Lord, man, I'm reading prophecy. Man, it was exciting. Oh, all these things are going to happen. You know, blah, 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 blah. yeah, but I've got to live my life right. It isn't about whether we're, you know, in, in this sense, okay, I, I think it's really important, that, you know, that we understand being pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, all, the, all those theological things. But it comes down to this. It comes down to whether we are people in holy conduct and godliness. Because Jesus is coming. Notice the next verse. Looking for. Now, we got the conduct thing right. I mean, we got it mentioned right. We've got there ought to be in good, holy conduct and godliness. Okay, now looking up, looking for and hastening, hastening, I should say, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervency. You see, we've got to get the order right. We got if if this is happening, I tell you what, if you look at the news on a daily basis and you see what's happening in Israel and you see what's happening in, in Iraq and you see what's happening in, 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 uh, in that part of the world it was prophesied to us thousands of years ago for this very reason to wake people up but I'm finding more and more people falling asleep on it and the sad thing is that that's happening in a lot of churches today they don't want to study prophecy Oh, you guys, you know, you, you doomsdayers, you know, you're, oh, you guys might as well walk around with a sandwich board, you know. Uh, the end is near. But it is. For this earth, for this world, the end is near. But praise the Lord, I don't belong to this world. And neither do you. How many of you are citizens of this world? I don't want to be. I, I almost got you there. The Bible says we're the citizens of heaven. That's where I want to be when I grow up. I want to be seeing the streets of gold. But I don't care about gold. I care about Jesus. I care about you seeing Jesus forever. And being in His presence. And serving Him. You're going to have things to do for the Lord. And it's going to be great. But we've got to get past this end of this earth. 
Ah, so where are we? One more verse. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We look for it. Anybody looking for it? I love what Jesus said. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. Keep looking up. Because I'm coming at any moment. But be very, very careful when you keep looking up because you might run into a telephone pole. Especially if you're texting. Right? Nobody's ever done that, right? Did y'all see that video? That lady was texting and she fell into the, uh, some kind of a fountain or something. Pues quien te manda? All right. No one else, nobody's going to be able to, to hide or to escape. I better hurry up. I'm sorry. I've, I've, I'm, no one, no one, no one. Let's get, back, let's get back to task here. No one will be able to hide from or escape from this judgment. This is all what, what we're seeing. One thing that we must remember as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't escape God's judgment either. But we are spared from this awesome throne of judgment because our sins were already judged. Where? They were judged in Jesus on the cross. Our sins were judged in Jesus on the cross. As stated this past weekend, if you were here this Saturday or Sunday night, in the book of Genesis, when Jacob is, is, is giving prophetic words to his sons, we believers do appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we will stand before Jesus. I, I quoted this verse of Second Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear. Remember, we, Paul is saying, we're together, the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, Paul had earlier described this judgment this way in, in the first letter, which is First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. I didn't quote it this uh, Sunday, but I, I want to quote it now where Paul says this, and he doesn't mention it, but we know it's connected because it is the same character of the kind of judgment that uh, he's describing. Uh, he says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on, the, on this foundation, that is the foundation of Jesus as the cornerstone, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. I mentioned the fire, the refining fire of God upon those who are believers. And then it says, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Well, if our work produces gold, silver, and precious stones, those things are going to survive the fire. But what about wood, hay, and stubble? Those things don't, you know, they don't survive a fire, so they get burned up. But that's okay because, you know, it's, it's not eternal. Those things aren't eternal. And if anyone's work which he uh, has built on, it endures... He will receive a reward, but notice this, and I said last time that our judgment is also a judgment of reward. If anyone's work is burned, that's the wood, hay, and stubble, he will suffer loss, but he is himself, or he himself will be saved. You see that? That's encouraging. Yet, so as through fire. Listen. Be careful that we don't make the Christian life a competition. If we are finding ourselves before the throne room of God on a daily basis in devotion and prayer and the reading of the Word, studying the Word, praying, uh, you know, uh, uh, seeking the face of the Lord every day as we should, God will speak to us what we are to do for Him. I've, I've heard too many Christians, even from pulpits, say, you know, brothers, if you're not doing this and you're not doing that or you're not standing up to my, what he's saying is up to my standard, you know, you're all going to burn. We all have wood, hay, and stubble in our lives. We all do. There are things that we will not take with us and we are even blessed to let the, the Lord burn it all up. We've had struggle trying to get away from it. Well, God will burn it up fine. We suffer that loss, but that's okay because it's not eternal. What remains will last forever. But our desire then is to always please God. 
no matter what we do. And so we work on it. We're all sinners saved by God's grace. So let's work on it. But don't compete with other people or don't think that some of you are better than others. None of us are. I thank God that many of you are an example to me in godly living. I have a precious wife. Shows me a lot. Teaches me a lot about loving Jesus. I'm so thankful for her. She keeps me in line too. Hijo. Wow. Which is good because sometimes I get a little... (laughs) As they say, those musicians, you got to watch out for them. Where am I? Okay, so now we see how distinct the judgments are, right? Because we have to see the distinction between the the, uh, Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ, which is one of, of correction and reward, but the, ju- the white throne judgment, no, that, this is totally different. Very distinct. We need to press on. Ah, uh, boy, we need to press on. I'm going to finish this, okay? So, uh, stay with me. Let's look at verse 12 of our text. And I saw the dead, small and great, which, by the way, means rich, poor, young, old. No more classes, no more levels, no. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was, was opened, which is the, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The the, the fact that these dead from every position and level of life are standing before God implies that this is certainly not a trial. Again, they stand before God, this is not a trial. Now maybe in some countries it's that way, but in our country it's not that way. During a trial, you know, the, the defendant sits with, the, with, the, with his, uh, with his uh, attorneys to hear all of the cases. But when a sentence has to come down, what do they say? Defendant, please rise. And he has to stand before the judgment that's given by the judge. Got the picture? All right, so the dead were... Uh, where are we? I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So that tells us there what we're, what we're dealing with. This is not a trial. Trials are conducted to determine what the facts are in any particular legal case. But for these, the facts are already in. This is more in line with the sentencing phase and their standing indicates the sentence is about to be given. In these cases, no one will have anything to say. The defendant doesn't have anything to say. You've had your time to say it. You have nothing to say now. No one will even be given the opportunity to say, you know what, I'll tell this God a thing or two. Won't happen. There'll be no such thing. They'll say no such thing. All that will be seen are the righteousness and the goodness of God. That's what they're going to stand before. The righteousness and the goodness of God. But notice, His hope, His redemption, His salvation in His only begotten Son has been rejected and scorned. And the sentence is given. At this judgment, John saw books opened, including a book called the Book of Life, the text does not state clearly what these books are, but the first open books may refer, may refer to human works, while the book of life, of course, is the record of those who are saved. I'll just say that very generally. 
But let's recall something. I want you to recall Revelation chapter 3 verse 5. Because in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 it says, He who overcomes. Now this, this is, a, this is the, uh, the word given by Jesus to the church of Sardis. And he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What a powerful statement. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Interestingly enough, in chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Now this is worshiping the Antichrist. Eventually, actually worshiping Satan. But, but this is the Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The fact that these dead have not been raised before the thousand year reign is evidence in itself that they do not have eternal life and that their judgment is a judgment of their works. Interestingly enough, the phrase according to their works is found in verses 12 and 13. So it's found twice and anytime we see something twice in the scriptures, it's ultimately significant. All the proof found in these books all the books open. All the proof that is found in these books is precise and it is indisputable for the Lord to pronounce his sentence. In other words, these books, in effect, are all of the facts of the case for every person. Every person that has rejected Jesus Christ. Every person that has rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ. Every person who has not and will not confess Jesus with his mouth and believe in his heart that he's risen from the dead. This, these, yeah, this is the proof in these books. All the proof found in these books is precise and indisputable for the Lord to pronounce his sentence proving that the sinner is worthy of hell. That's the bottom line. But the matter itself was settled and it was sealed by each sinner for himself and it was finalized at their death. It was finalized when they died without Christ. That is why after a thousand years the second resurrection then takes place and all those as we'll see in verse look at look at verse 13 the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each according to his works John is being very descriptive of what he saw the sea, if you remember the sea is not so much, you know some people say well you know there are probably a lot of people in the sea no, we talked about the symbolism of the book of Revelation and the consistency of it the sea is a multitude of people multitudes upon multitudes of people out of all the multitudes who have rejected Jesus Christ the sea gives them up most of them of course are dead they've been dead for a thousand years at least death has given them up Hades which is that abode uh, you know of, 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 of the dead it's called hell in scripture but it's not the final hell there's other words we'll deal with that a little later. But they gave them up. It just says everybody that did not find their name in the book of life. And they were judged according, each one according to his works. The verse here describes the resurrection and judgment of the unrighteous more fully. In a more logical sequence, this verse could fit in the middle of the preceding verse, verse 12. It could fit in the middle there, but it is here for a reason. This second resurrection, as it were, results in death, whereas the previous resurrection, which is the first resurrection of the righteous, that results in life. Do you see the difference and the distinction? One resurrection results in life, one resurrection results in death. And as I said, the sea is symbolically descriptive of the multitudes of unrighteous and unrepentant humanity. Death and Hades more than likely refer to the state of death and the place of death. Hades being the temporary abode of unbeliever spirits 
until the great white throne judgment. It is also believed that the statement death and Hades gave up the dead means that the physical bodies of the unsaved will be joined with their spirits which have been in that intermediate abode. That's very possible. None shall be left though. The important thing is none shall be left. All shall stand before God because all will receive a sentence. And all the books contain all of the proof. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. What does that strike you as? Well, it's a promise. No more death. You ever just sat around? I tell you what, as a, as a pastor, as a chaplain, I have actually at times in my own burden heart I've said Lord I've had enough of death every call in 13 years of working with with law enforcement nobody's invited me to a party I've always been invited to go and help a family through death Not to mention, of course, the pastorate and the importance of being with our own family here through times of, of loss and pain and hurt. And every one is special to me, which makes it all the more painful to say, Lord, I'm tired of it. But I'm not alone. More people have suffered even greater issues with death. Sometimes it comes because we have family that have died in their sins. And it's painful because it's an eternal issue. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. That's it for them. No more death. And no more hell. And anyone not found and written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The last vestiges of sin will finally be eliminated. Death, which is the result of sin since the garden, will be eradicated forever. Hades and hell, which is the result of death, will also be abolished as well forever. And what more do we know about the lake of fire? It is a place in a specific location, though I don't know where that would be. I mean, I, you know, some people say, what's in the center of the earth and blah, blah, blah. Listen, God knows where it is. That's all that matters. I think I've quoted to you Deuteronomy 29 a whole lot of times. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord. He knows where hell is. He knows, or at least he knows where the lake of fire is. He knows where Gehenna is. But I can tell you this, it's a place of punishment and it is a place that is of divine origin. And it is God himself who will inflict the punishment. God will inflict the punishment. Not the devil. Not the devil in a red suit. Y'all haven't seen those pictures, you know, the devil's the one that greets you at hell and pokes you on the backside all the time. No. As a matter of fact, the devil will go through that torment himself. But Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 5, he says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So who has the power to cast you into hell? God. That's who we need to fear. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we fear with a totally different fear than the fear of torment that the world will eventually have to fear with. Our fear is a reverential fear. Our fear is one of, of, of reverence and respect and awe of God and His greatness and His love and His mercy and His grace. In Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31, it says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith 
the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not the devil. The devil's not in charge of hell. The devil's not in charge of the lake of fire. He's the one that's already burning up in it. And as Layman Strauss, a great commentator on the book of Revelation, once said, he said, there is much about the lake of fire I do not know, and I am trusting God's word and Christ's finished work that I shall never find out. I really like that. At this point, I can only plead with all of you here and all of you who are within the sound of my voice to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah. And to call upon Him now and receive Him now, for this is what Jesus said. And I want to close with this. But this is what Jesus said in John 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What a wonderful promise. You come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. And then he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. The last day before the thousand-year reign of Christ. Why? Because that's the first resurrection for all who believe. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. I will raise you up. God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world when He came in the flesh, but that the world through Him might be saved. Is salvation important? Is our salvation secure in Jesus Christ? It is my hope and prayer that it is because I don't ever want to come back to Revelation chapter 20. We have two chapters left. And they're glorious. And beautiful chapters. Read them ahead of time and then we'll study them. But I want no one to be in the lake of fire. I want you all to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's pray.